Thank you for listening to the Whole Church Podcast. Our efforts to educate and unite the church are made possible thanks to our sponsors on Patreon. Please consider joining them for $3 a month. You can also support the show by donating to our fundraiser. Currently, we're selling fundraiser shows in the link down below. Check them out. Romans 12, 17 through 21 in the NASB say, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, Nathan Gilmore, many ministers today claim we shouldn't care about the world's values, but only God's values. In this verse, Paul tells us to do what is right for the sight of all men, though. How important is it for Christians to help our fellow man and do what is right in everyone's sight? What I like so much about this is that the same Paul who writes this also writes in other places that uh, whatever it is that he is calling us to do is going to be a scandal. It's going to be foolishness. It's going to be all kinds of things uh, that, you know, by definition, uh, do not suit everybody. Uh, So one of the things that I like about Paul is that he's not afraid to address these contradictions. Now, in this particular passage, you know, in the context of his teaching on vengeance, uh, you know, I think that what he's driving at is our calling as Christians, you know, is going to involve representing Christ as the body of Christ. That's one of the metaphors as the ecclesia, theu, uh, the, uh, the assembly of God is another metaphor that Paul uses with some frequency. But what he always insists on here and in Ephesians and in others of his letters is that we are not to impose that. We are not to insist. Uh, instead, we are to invite And, you know, that's one of the many places where, you know, Paul takes a contradiction and, you know, turns it into a certain kind of a calling. And that's one of the things I like so much about Paul. All right. What's up, guys? I am one of your co-hosts, TJ Tiberius Juan Blackwell. Uh, We're doing things a little out of order today. Josh is mysteriously absent because he's tied up. Not literally, hopefully, but... He will be on later. I'm here with our esteemed guest for the day, uh, Nathan Gilmore, host of the Christian Humanist podcast. And we're going to talk about Christian humanism. Sounds like a winner. Yeah, I thought so. Uh, if you're listening, you should go check out our, our new merch. We have fundraiser shirts. Uh, we're trying to build a new website. We're trying to do the con next year. Not an actual con. I promise we're not stealing your money. Uh, it's just a convention. Get your shirt, get your ticket. If you don't like the shirt, there are other options. You know, we'll give you the pass if you just don't like the fundraiser shirts. Uh, Links to both will be in the show notes. All right. So, Mr. Gilmore, have you listened to the show before? I have listened to a few episodes, yeah. I I just met Josh uh, in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and uh, we've been, you know, corresponding through uh, email and Facebook messages and such because I'm old, so those are the electronic oh, yeah. communication devices I use. And, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to think. I, I think I've listened to four or five episodes at this point. I've enjoyed what I've heard. Cool, cool. So, you know, we usually start with a silly question. Yes, Josh's indeed. favorite form of unity. Excellent. Uh, if this is your first episode, we normally start with a silly question because it's Josh's favorite form of unity. Uh, 
today's. He is sadly absent for, but he'll probably answer it when he gets on. Uh, if we were in an escape room, and I will answer first to give you as much time as you need, uh, but you've probably thought about it more than me because I, I skipped this part <laughs> when I read through it. But if we were in an escape room and each of us got to bring any one fictional character with us, who would you bring? Me personally, we're in an escape room and he has to be fictional, so I'm going to make it fictional, but I have a real life person I use for this purpose. Uh, I'm going to choose Wilt from Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends. I'm not sure if you're familiar. I'm not familiar with that one. What what does Wilt do? Uh, basically, he's just uh, a kid's imaginary friend based off of Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain. He's just really tall. He's like nine feet tall. A lot of escape rooms like to hide stuff up really high where you have to get like a certain perspective on it to get at it. At least all the ones I've been to. So, Wilt's got it all for me. He's got super long arms so you can cheat. That's all. Wilt or MacGyver. That's funny. My pick also involves cheating. uh, So we've got that in common. Uh, My pick is going to be Kitty Pride from the X-Men. Simply because, I mean, if the the room proves to be too difficult, uh, you know, Kitty Pride can uh, phase through the wall, open it from the outside, and therefore I have defeated the escape room. Yeah. That's advanced cheating. That's like, skip the whole thing if you got it. Well, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a fictional, so I, I think yeah. we can go there. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Man, what a good idea. I just like tall guys. My friend Simon's six foot eight. They okay. never stand a chance. Uh, one time we just had, they hid a clue on top of a volcano that was yeah. in the room. And you had to, like, get on the prow of the ship to see it. But Simon just walked past it and was like, hey, there's a clue. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, welcome to the show, Josh. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I am the your least favorite co-host. Uh, I, I <laughs> came. I'm tardy, but I'm here. Um, <laughs> yeah, we were having a meeting with our other podcast, Systematic Geekology. So be sure to check that out. We have some fun changes coming up over there. Uh, I'm sure you all will love to hear about. So, Josh, uh, you get to bring one any one fictional character with you into an escape room. Who are you picking? I think the name of the character is literally just Demon Cat. Adventure Time, there's an episode where they're going through one of the dungeons. Uh, there's a cat that just said, claims that he has approximate knowledge of many things. Keeps getting people's names just barely wrong and almost guessing where they're hiding. Uh, I'm not trying to win the escape room. I'm trying for the most amusement. And I think it would just be hilarious to have him almost getting everything right. Yeah, I just think I'd have a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah. I, like, I like to say that I am. I do have approximate knowledge of all things. Yeah, so I'm basically bringing TJ. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I can. I can guess any question. I can guess an answer that's close enough. If you don't do any more research about it, I'll be right. <laughs> Perfect. That's yeah. that's just what I want. Sounds like a yeah. great fun adventure. Yeah, good answer. Good answer. But let's jump right into this one. Uh, you call yourself a Christian humanist, but most people think athe- atheist when they hear the word humanist today. Uh, what can you tell our listeners about the history of humanism? All right. So I'm going to try to do the brief version of this, which is always difficult for me. Um, but human uh, as an adjective or as a noun, you know, is a Latin derived word. The figure who's interesting here is the first century BC philosopher Cicero or Cicero, if you learned uh, Latin from a, a, a Virgilian Latinist. And uh, in his philosophy, he develops this idea that most beings, Uh, So whether you're talking about plants, whether you're talking about non-human animals, most beings have a relatively inflexible nature. Uh, Trees are pretty much going to be trees. 
rocks are pretty much going to be rocks. Cats are pretty, pretty much going to be cats. Humanitas, which is the nature that is particular to us, um, is far more flexible. And, and Kikoro is fascinated with this. And he realizes that, you know, we have the possibility to become surgeons or to become ship captains or to become field generals or to become philosophers. And all of these things are wildly different from each other. And yet they all emerge from the same basic kind of a body. Now, I mean, in the 14th century AD now, uh, you know, we've had a number of centuries where monastic libraries are pretty much in Western Europe, the only place where you're going to find these texts. But you have a movement starting with, you know, a guy named uh, Petrarch or Francisco Petrarca to start to copy all of these books from these monastery libraries. And his broad project is to learn everything possible from all of these ancient authors and to get them as close as possible to the original text as he can. So the, uh, the slogan of this movement uh, was back to the sources or ad fontes. And if you've ever, you know, been in a uh, biblical studies context where people talk about, you know, the best manuscript for this or the best manuscript for that, uh, you're talking about something that, you know, has its roots there in that ad fontes movement. That goes on for about 300 years. We're going to talk about some of the big figures there. Um, but in the 19th century, so we're talking about the 1800s, you get a a blooming, I'll call it that way, of open atheism. Now, the first person to self-identify as an atheist in writing does so in the 1740s, so it's a fairly recent phenomenon historically. But by the 19th century, you know, it becomes something of a fad or a fashion uh, among educated people. And you start to get talk of a religion of humanity that by the 1880s uh, becomes sort of a slogan for international atheism. So you get journals like the New Atheist, the, or pardon me, the New Humanist, the American Humanist, the British Humanist, so on and so forth. Uh, of course, you know, non-English journals have, you know, their own versions with that same Latin root. And by the 20th century, you've got, uh, you know, pretty well-developed humanist organizations. And in fact, there's a document called the Humanist Manifesto, uh, which is, you know, a call for human beings or at least educated human beings to live without God. Hmm. So what you've got there is, you know, I mean, pre-Christian beginnings, which is just an exploration of the flexibility of human nature. You've got a Christian movement of teachers and writers and thinkers that are really interested in learning everything possible from everyone possible to learn it from. And then in the most recent, you know, we'll say 130 years, give or take, you've got a shift so that humanist comes to mean atheist. So when we were, uh, when the three of us on the Christian Humanist podcast, uh, Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and myself, were trying to come up with titles, uh, we had all, you know, read books that referred to figures like Petrarch and Ficino and William Shakespeare and John Milton as Christian humanists. And I just really like that phrase, you know, first of all, because it, <laughs> you know, it's a cool group of people to emulate. And also because, you know, it kind of destabilizes what we think we mean when we say Christian and what we think we mean when we say humanist. And so that kind of became our, our name. So that's the, uh, I, I hope that wasn't too uh, expansive, but that's the brief version of how we came to be Christian humanists. Sweet. Awesome. Um, Nathan, you were talking about the humanist movement and how today a lot of times we just think of atheist as humanist. Um, yes. You gave us some of the history as well. Whether we mean people who think more in that classic form of humanist or whether we mean 
what most atheists today, when they say humanist, they mean, you know, they care about humanity first. Sure. Shouldn't all Christians be, be humanists? I mean, shouldn't that just be a thing? It depends on what the word means. I mean, so for instance, you know, I mean, really the the person who brought the phrase secular humanism, for instance, into the popular imagination is Francis Schaeffer, right? And, you know, I mean, when he writes yeah. about secular humanism, he is writing about a view of the world that is exclusively consisting of um, non-intentional matter and energy. And so, I mean, you know, that's something that, you know, I really can't sign off on. So, I mean, it really does matter, uh, you know, which meaning of the word uh, we're using. Now, I will say that, you know, Christians certainly should be concerned about other human beings. That, that seems to be kind of at the core of what Jesus calls us to. And also, you know, I would, I would say that, you know, those, those Ciceronian insights should probably also be part of what we think about when we do theologies of sin, theologies of redemption, when we think about how we live together. You know, I mean, it's not identical with, and I want to be real clear about this, it's not identical with what St. Paul writes about when he talks about the gifts of the Spirit, mm-hmm. but it's at minimum, I'll put it this way, at minimum, uh, you know, helpful to think about the ways that human beings exist together in communities based on the things that we have come to be expert in. So, you know, I mean, when St. Paul, for instance, writes in 1 Corinthians that the people who have a gift of healing, uh, you know, are, are not less than those who are given the gift of ecstatic tongues. That's not exactly what we mean when we talk about, you know, some people become teachers, some people become farmers, some people become merchants, uh, but they're related enough that I think that, you know, we can learn something about how to talk about one by the ways that we talk about the other. Yeah. And the way that Paul talks about moderation definitely has some Aristotle vibe to it. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so as so we're talking about more of what most people mean when they think of humanist, I, I want to get past to this part before we before we move on. Just when most people think of, oh, no, this is where we're putting humanity first. And the fact that we associate that with atheism I, really is a huge red flag to me when we think of, mm-hmm. you know, like you mentioned Jesus, right? He said, you know, the best command, love God and one like it, love your neighbor. We think of the very one of the very first doctrines you can pull from the Bible is the Imago Dei. And you see in Genesis created mm-hmm. in God's image, whatever you think that means, literally whatever there is definitely this sense that for Christians, for believers of the Bible, humanity matters, right? Sure. So why, why do we just associate that with atheism? <laughs> well, like I said, it's because the atheists have claimed the word and, you know, that's part of our project is to destabilize that. Right. So, you know, yeah. to be honest, I mean, I think that the atheists and then the, the movement that, you know, Francis Schaeffer both inherited and also propelled forward, uh, both share some of the blame for, associating humanism with atheism, right? Uh, you know, the humanist, both versions of the humanist manifesto are expressly atheist documents. And also, uh, and I always get the words in the title in the wrong order. So listeners just look it up both ways, but either how then should we live or how should we then live? I always forget what the title is. You know, I mean, it uses secular humanist just dozens and dozens of times and it always means yeah. atheist. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I can sympathize with, you know, the unease that people have when they hear our name, uh, whether they be atheists or whether they be believers. And uh, that that's kind of why we do it. <laughs> Fun. So the Christian Humanist Podcast, one of your goals is to destabilize the word humanist. 
in its current word connotation. That's the word. Yeah. Uh, there you do go. you have? Do you guys have any other uh, goals at the time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, from the beginning, I mean, one of our mottos was we take the question at hand utterly seriously and ourselves not at all. So, I mean, we genuinely do believe that there are certain questions in literature and philosophy and theology and art and history and all of these human enterprises that are really important questions and really deserve serious attention. And also, we try to hold on loosely to our own takes on them. Uh, and you know, there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is simply, you know, we want to avoid the vice of arrogance. Uh, but also we want to remain open to the possibility that someone could teach us something. And, you know, again, that is one of the things that marks the humanist. It makes the humanist dangerous, frankly, in the 14th and the 15th and the 16th centuries is that they read poets like Ovid and, you know, they say, all right, you know, uh, these gods in the metamorphoses, I mean, are utter moral monsters. Well, I mean, one of the lines of questioning that opens up is, you know, I mean, in places like, um, and, you know, my, my go-to text on this is First Kings 22, right? Uh, where, you know, uh, King, I think it's King Ahav, but it might be one of the other kings, uh, you know, when he calls on the prophet, uh, you know, to bring him the word of the Lord, the prophet brings him a false prophecy. And, you know, we find out later that, I mean, you know, God claims credit for it. And, you know, I mean, that is that is a deeply, I you know, I, I always tell people, I mean, you know, people's seminary stories are all about that one book by that one German theologian that almost made you lose your faith. Uh, for me, it was translating First Kings 22 out of the Hebrew because I'm like that. That can't actually be what it says, but that's what it says. So, you know, humanism in that respect, I mean, can be very dangerous. And also, I mean, it's it's really the only way that I know how to proceed in the world as a person of faith. So uh, where can people go to hear the podcast or follow you guys on socials? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, our, our big sort of uh, clearinghouse is uh, christianhumanist.org. That's our main website. Um, that has uh, show announcements for most of our shows. Our, our network now is about eight different podcasts, uh, you know, ranging all the way from before they were live, which is an examination of the uh, Disney animated uh, feature films, uh, to City of Man, which is a faith and politics podcast, the Christian Feminist podcast, which is a really a glorious range of liberal, radical, and complementarian feminists. You don't think it's possible, but it is. Um, <laughs> talking about you know just a wonderful, wonderful range of things. The original podcast, the Christian Humanist podcast, has been in a slow a slow season. I'll put that, put it that way because, uh, the other two hosts, I, I mentioned them before Michael Farmer and David Grubbs, uh, they both left, uh, academia. They stopped being professors, um, about yeah. a school year and a half ago, and they're now teaching high school. So they are adjusting to a very, very different schedule. So I think we've only recorded maybe, I want to say seven episodes in 2022 on the main podcast. And I was only on, I think five of them. Um, on the other hand, you know, Christian Humanist Profiles, which is our uh, author interview show, I think there's been at least a dozen of those this this year, probably more like 15 or 20. So, yeah, ChristianHumanist.org. Sorry, that was that became more expansive than it should have. Uh, ChristianHumanist.org <laughs> is the uh, clearinghouse for all of that. Nice. Awesome. Nice. Expansive. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, We've been at it since 09, so we're, we're, we are some of the old dogs in the, uh, the, the God pod world. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, uh, longer than us. Uh, we've been about five years. So 
Okay. Not yeah. that long. I was 10 <laughs> in 2009, so. Yeah. yeah he didn't <laughs> oh, start yeah. podcasting. Thanks. Anymore. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but recently, uh, not, you know, you didn't record so much for your show, but I have heard you on another podcast. Uh, you were on the Partially Examined Life Philosophy podcast, um, and you were talking about the Dutch philosopher Erasmus. Am I saying that correctly? Yep. Desiderius Erasmus. Sweet. Uh, as an example of a Christian humanist thinking, uh, could you explain Erasmus' work and how it can influence our Christian thinking? All right. So first of all, I, I, th this is another threat for me to get expansive. So I'll try to keep this as brief as I can. But, uh, <laughs> you know, just to give you a sense of how prolific Erasmus was in his lifetime. Uh, and we're talking about a, an early 16th century writer. Um, the collected works of Erasmus from the University of Toronto Press runs 86 volumes, and they are volumes, any one of which, if it fell off a high shelf, it might kill you. So, I mean, you know, we're talking about shelves <laughs> yeah. and shelves of, of, of writing. The big things that, you know, Erasmus is rightly recognized for, first of all, he assembled the critical Greek text uh, that became the basis for just a gigantic array of modern biblical translations. Uh, you know, when you talk about the uh, King James Bible, the Geneva Bible, um, you know, the Bishop's Bible, the Great Bible, all of mm -hmm. them are working from the Greek New Testament that Erasmus assembled. And he did so in that humanist way. He went to every monastery. He went to every cathedral. He went all over Europe. Uh, he visited, you know, basically any place that had a library and compared these scrolls, right, or compared these codices, and he constructed uh, as best as he could what he was pretty sure the original Greek New Testament would look like. Hmm. Now, he also wrote, uh, you know, the single preacher's guide that revolutionized preaching in Europe. So uh, it's called Ecclesiastes. Uh, if that sounds like the book of the Old Testament, it's because it's the same word. Uh, it's the one who speaks <laughs> to the assembly. And, you know, in this one, he brings Ciceronian and Augustinian rhetorical teaching to bear on Christian preaching. And what's fascinating is Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin and all of the Protestant reformers adopted this. And mm -hmm. by by force of that preaching, I mean, the movement just started spreading like wildfire, so much so that when the Roman Catholic Church established the theological seminary, that's a that's an institution that's only about 500 years old. It was it was invented in response to um, the Protestant Reformation. Um, Ecclesiastes was also their chief preacher's guide. He also wrote a uh, a guide for writing teachers called the Copia, and uh, he is such a good writing teacher that I still use exercises from that 500 year old book in my own writing classes in 2022. Wow. He had a famous feud with Martin Luther. Uh, his mm -hmm. book, the On the Freedom of the Will, Martin Luther answered with a book almost three times its length called On the Bondage of the Will. Um, mm -hmm. I think Erasmus was right, but that's a that's a that's a question for another episode. I have a hunch, but at any rate, I mean, just to get the, you know, that is just scratching the surface of the the massive massive influential literary career of Desiderius Erasmus. I mean, he, I. It's, it's hard to overstate just how revolutionary a figure he was, even as he remained a devoted and loyal uh, Roman Catholic Christian for his whole lifetime. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So listeners, uh, beware 
of that uh, Versus series we keep threatening. Uh, when we have Pastor Will, your favorite Lutheran pastor on here with Nathan, and uh, we'll have a just Luther versus Erasmus. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. One day. One day. It's also, Very good. Uh, it's, it's truly amazing how history repeats itself because, you know, uh, Luther's spat with Erasmus. You know, you know you've really gotten under somebody's skin when their response to your argument is many, <laughs> many times longer than your argument. Absolutely. That's, that's, Absolutely. You're on a good path there. You're getting results. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, on uh, the Partially Examined Life podcast, you mentioned his work, The Praise of Folly. Uh, doesn't that go contradictory to much of the scripture in the Proverbs, for example? Yes and no. So, I mean, you know, what's fun about Erasmus, one of the many things that's fun about Erasmus, I'll put it that way, is that he is aware of the contradictions uh, in this biblical faith of ours. And he doesn't try to flatten them out. One of the things that um, I, I feel like makes me exasperating, it's not the only thing that makes me exasper exasperating, but it's one of them, uh, is that I always look for the complexity. Uh, if, if people have a simple answer to something, I say, yes, but have you thought about, and you know, we go from there. So yes, I mean, you know, you have books like Proverbs, you have books like um, the wisdom Psalms, you have all kinds of places that, you know, speak in praise of wisdom, Hokma in the Hebrew, Sophia in the Greek, uh, you know, the gospel of Matthew calls Christ the wisdom of God. Um, and you know, in all of these places, um, I think the Bible really does mean it. Then you also have, uh, you know, the book of Ecclesiastes, which we just mentioned, uh, you know, Koheleth in the Hebrew, uh, that says, you know, uh, be wise, but don't be too wise. Cause if you get too much <laughs> wisdom, you really become miserable. And then you get, you know, Job that says, uh, if anyone comes to you claiming that they have wisdom, it's probably fake. And, you know, here are all of the ways in which, you know, the things that we conventionally say about God are utter nonsense. And by the way, all of these are coming from the character Job. And at the end, God says, Job, I want you to go offer sacrifices for these guys who say the conventional things because you've spoken truly and they haven't. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, uh, and then, of course, I mean, you know, you've got St. Paul himself uh, who calls himself a fool for Christ and who says that, you know, the crucified Christ is foolishness. So, you know, Erasmus, I mean, in in the praise of folly, uh, plays with all of those texts. He It, it is a wide ranging work. Uh, it's not by any means my favorite Erasmus book, but it's the one that the guys on Partially Examined Life wanted to talk about. And frankly, when a philosophy podcast with listeners in the six digits invites you on, you don't say no. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. They, they are the biggest yeah. philosophy podcast on the Internet. But at any rate, yeah. um, the other thing about Praise of Folly, and, and, this, and this is another facet to it that makes it interesting, right, uh, is that there is a long running tradition in the history of rhetoric uh, called the encomium. And what an encomium does is it either praises or blames something. And the way that the, uh, the fourth century and the fifth century BC uh, rhetoric teachers would show their wares, so to speak, and, you know, prove to people that they should spend considerable money, letting them teach their young sons how to speak publicly rather than one of those other rhetoric teachers is they would speak in praise of something that no one in their right mind would speak in praise of. So the one that has come down to us uh, is from a, a rhetoric teacher named Gorgias, 
uh, who is also the subject of one of Plato's dialogues. And what Gorgias does is in this speech, and it's a set piece that he would have recited in front of crowds to prove just how skillful he is at, con- at convincing people. Um, he sets out to convince people that in the Trojan War, the most praiseworthy person is Helen. And, you know, if you've read your Homer, uh, and I hope you have, you know that, you know, Helen herself in the Odyssey spends lines and lines and lines blaming herself for all of the needless death at Troy. So, you know, what Gorgias does is he says, I'm going to convince you to praise someone who won't even praise herself. Okay. So fast forward, you know, 2000 years, give or take to Erasmus. What he is doing in the praise of folly is a similar kind of thing. He says, all right, uh, you know, you've got universities at this point in Paris and Oxford and, uh, you know, Bologna, Italy, and, you know, popping up around Europe in various places. And they all have faculties of philosophy. So wisdom is what we should praise. So he says, what I'm going to do as a rhetoric teacher is I'm going to praise folly instead. Hmm. Yeah, I am. couple things. One, I just want to point out that absolutely somewhere out there, there is a Christian punk rock band that is definitely titled Fool for Christ. That definitely Uh, exists. That's got to be the case. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Also, I have two two of my favorite examples of people trying to get you to like the unlikable, so to speak, like that. Three, (laughs) one, well, honest proposal is more satire. But I, uh, Stan Lee intentionally created Iron Man in the 60s when the man was, you know, everybody hated the man. Everybody hated the the rich white guy. And he was like, I'm going to create a superhero that is the rich white guy that everybody hates and try to make them love him. And that's how Iron Man started. <laughs> so that's cool. one of my favorites. An- another one, because it's created a lot of debate in, in Christian culture, or at least, you know, evangelical Christian culture, is the song Reckless Love. You know, a lot of people get really uptight about that. God's not reckless. God plans everything. God is all, you know, wisdom and smart and blah. How do you think this idea of praising folly can weigh in on this huge, you know, reckless love debate that's gotten silly and out of hand? So, first of all, I am an elder at a uh, Disciples of Christ Church, and we have piano music in the mornings on Sunday. So I had to go find this song and listen to it because I, I had no idea what you were <laughs> that's talking funny. about. That's funny. <laughs> but um, now, honestly, I'll, I'll go ahead and say that probably they have done it at a Tuesday morning chapel at the college where I teach, but I just forgot it. Definitely. One of the things that yeah, I like the most. Out. Yeah, well, that's also possible. That's also possible. (laughs) One of the things I like most about that is that it returns uh, in the chorus to the 99 sheep, right? And, you know, of course, that's a that's a reference to Luke's uh, parable, uh, you know, about the shepherd who's not a very good shepherd because one of the hundred sheep wanders off and he leaves the 99 in the wilderness to go after the one. And then after he's retrieved the one, he doesn't go back to the 99, but he goes back into town to celebrate. And, you know, this is one of those things where, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and say, I mean, it irritates me because when (laughs) preachers get a hold of this text, the tendency, and it's not universal, but it's a tendency, is to remove the folly of that shepherd and say, well, probably he left the sheep in an enclosure or probably he went to get another shepherd to watch them or something other than what the text actually says, which is he left them in the wilderness. Right. So, I mean, you know, Jesus's (laughs) own parables reflect that kind of folly of God. And, you know, I think that 
uh, you know, when I have been a preacher and I was a preacher for about three years and every Sunday kind of preacher, I've been preaching, I've been filling pulpit. I'll put it that way since then. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but you know, I mean, one of the things that I really tried to emphasize is that the parables of Jesus are not conventional wisdom dressed up in a cute story. Um, they are stories that try to ease us into the possibility that God has gone nuts. And so, you know, I mean, what is God like? God is like a shepherd who abandons his entire flock. Okay, that's not a good shepherd. What What's going on there? Or God is like a farmer who throws his seed not on the field, but on the road. Well, that's, that's not a good farmer. Uh, you know, and, you know, the... the this went all the way up to seminary when I was, when I was doing biblical studies in seminary, I had a professor who tried to tell us that, you know, uh, this is just an example of broadcast, um, broadcast agriculture was the, the fancy sounding seminary term for it, that everyone just threw their seeds all over the place. And I, I, to this day, I'm a little bit irritated at that because I mean, they knew where the road was in the first century (laughs) and they knew Mm -hmm. if you throw your seed on the road, it ain't going to grow there. So, I mean, (laughs) what Jesus, I think, in his parables is doing, and I think that this song, you know, taps into it quite nicely, uh, is to say whatever is happening here. And of course, this is leading up to, you know, the Messiah of God dying as a an insurgent fighter executed on a cross. You know, whatever God is doing here, everything that you have learned before has probably ill prepared you to be ready for it. You're just not going to get this. It is all linked up, but you're not going to have any idea how it links up until, and of course, you know, in Luke, what we discover is you don't discover how it all links up until Christ breaks breaks bread, pardon me, after the resurrection. Yeah. And of course, we're not saying God's an idiot. We're saying that sometimes these things look like folly. They look ridiculous. <laughs> you know, they yeah, yeah. sound out silly even. Yeah. 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 I didn't mind the song at first. And then a bunch of people kept telling me that I look like Corey Asbury, (laughs) which which was cool like the first time. And then it was terrible after that. It was like every person, every new person I met because I was going to a Christian college. I was like, you look like Corey. Like, hey, I know. I'm not him. So so I'm going to go ahead and, you know, you've already dated me once. I'm going to I'm just going to add to it. Um, I was in Christian college when Rich Mullins died. Oh. Yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's rough. I'm old. So, I'm old. So who do you think outside of Erasmus uh, would be a good example of a philosopher who enriched your Christian view of the world that most people might not know about? All right. So, I mean, my sense of most people is so skewed because, you know, I'm a college professor. <laughs> so, you know, I hang out well, with professors. If- I work with professors. With that said, I'm, I'm going to do one that most professors have heard of, but a lot of folks who are not professors haven't heard of, and that is the uh, 6th century philosopher Boethius. Um, he is oh. a Christian philosopher. Uh, he writes uh, treatises on music. He writes treatises on the tr- the Trinity. Um, he writes in Latin, which is you know very significant in the history of philosophy because he sets up, really, I mean, he expands on the philosophical vocabulary in Latin that Cicero started and Augustine picked mm-hmm. up, and then it kind of got left for a while. Uh, and sets up possibilities for medieval philosophy as we know it. What makes Boethius so interesting, though, is that depending on which version of his book you read, and I'll explain what I mean by that in just a second, he was either falsely accused or rightly accused of conspiring against the emperor of Rome. 
and he was put on death row. Mm. And his final book, the the consolation of philosophy, uh, is an allegorical conversation with himself and lady philosophy, a sort of allegorical figure for wisdom. Now there's two versions of this book. Um, there's actually several versions of this book, but there's two that I'm going to talk about here. One of them is the original Latin text. It's a short read. It's about 110 pages in most printings. And in that one, he's falsely accused of conspiring against the emperor. And it ends with this glorious conversation about how human responsibility and divine knowledge relate to each other. And what makes it so great is that he lays out how if humans really are responsible for what we do, then God cannot know exhaustively the future. Because if God knew the future, then the future must be something. And we cannot do other than what God knows. And therefore, we can't do other than what we're about to do. And therefore, we're not responsible for what we're about to do. And also, (laughs) it is also true that as human beings, we are responsible for what we do because we could do otherwise. And he says, both of those can't be true. And yet each of them has to be true. And we're not going to try to resolve them. Uh, you need to just go pray about it. And that's how the book ends. It says, go pray about it because <laughs> you, you, you don't understand Beautiful. it yet, even if you think you do. And, and, and this is, you know, Josh, you and I have talked before about my love hate with C.S. Lewis. This is one of my <laughs> hate C.S. Lewis moments is that in mere Christianity, he tries to render Boethius's contradiction in such a way that it's not a contradiction anymore. And that just bugs the heck out of me because the glory and the genius of the Latin text of consolation of philosophy is that he pushes you right to the edge of what human reason can do to an utter contradiction that is irresolvable. And then he says, go pray because that's the only thing that's going to help you at this point. And then C.S. Lewis says, no, it's not really a problem. I'm like, yes, it is. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) let me talk for just a moment about the other version that I love so much about, and I got to do some math here, 350 years after Boethius is in fact executed for conspiring against the emperor, the Anglo-Saxon king Alfred uh, commissions a translation of Boethius into English. Uh, Now we would call it Old English. Of course, they would just call it English. And what's great about this is it is more than twice the length of the Latin text And it only keeps about a third of the Latin text. So it is an entirely new book, basically, but they still put the name Boethius on it because in the Middle Ages, that's what you do. If something is really good, you put an ancient name on it out of respect for the ancients. (laughs) Sure. And in that one, what's fascinating is he is framed for conspiring against the emperor. It was a false charge, which is completely absent. No, back that up. In the Latin text, he's framed. I I flipped that. (laughs) In the Old English text, he says, well, yeah, I conspired against the emperor of Rome. He's a tyrant and a free people shouldn't live under a tyrant. <laughs> so completely <laughs> changes that detail in the Latin text. You know, it's a, it's a stoical guide to life that says, don't get involved with the pursuit of riches, of fame, of power, of any of these things that the world can take away. Instead, focus on your soul and focus on the virtues of your soul in the old English text. Lady philosophy spends 75 pages or more telling him how to be a good king. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, what's what's great about, you know, the the consolation of philosophy is that it's not the name of one book. It's the name of contradictory books. (laughs) That's sweet. Yeah, that's fantastic. So we don't we don't know who did the commission, though. We don't know who did the translation. Um, oh, goodness. People who are better medievalists than I am probably do. 
Oh, sweet. As long as I can <laughs> so, look it up. Yeah, that's that. That's probably knowledge that is available. It's it's just not in my head right now. All right. So is there any one question you've always hoped you'd get asked when guest starring on another podcast that people rarely seem to ask? Now, now this is funny. I, I, I recently recorded my hundredth uh, book interview for Christian Humanist Profiles, so I'm usually the one doing the wow. question asking. Uh, but here, here I'll, I'll take a run at it. Here's the question I'd like to hear is, uh, Nathan Gilmore, what questions arising from biblical texts do you wish that theologians would take more seriously? Hmm. Nathan Gilmore, what questions arising from biblical texts do you wish that theologians would take more seriously? That is a phenomenal question, TJ. I'm glad you posed that. My brief answer is I wish that they would take the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings more seriously. And here's why. Because theologians as a group, and there are exceptions to this, tend to want to create theologies without contradiction. And I think that there's something admirable about that because we do want to be logical. The the last uh, couple syllables of theology are logi, logos, logic. Right. Mm-hmm. But then every time I read and every time I teach first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, what we confront is a God who is so utterly hidden that, like I said earlier, sometimes he will take credit for sending lies to mortals. Sometimes he will strike people down and there's no good reason for it. Sometimes. And by the way, if you try to give a good reason for it, you are supplementing what the text does, <laughs> you know, this is a God who is completely shrouded in mystery. And, you know, because I've taught the book of Job so much, I'm kind of prepared for that because, I mean, you know, like I said, the character for Job, I mean, spends most of that book. By the way, I mean, the part where, you know, his kids die and his body is stricken is chapters one and two. It's a 42 book or it's a 42 chapter book of the Bible. Most of that book is Job disputing with, you know, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar about basically whether it means anything to call God just, whether it means anything to call God good. And Job, time time and time again, uh, comes at them with, I mean, pretty knockdown arguments for why it makes no sense to call God just. And I mean, it's, it's fascinating stuff. But like I said, I mean, you know, when theologians take it on, I mean, the tendency is for them to minimize that well, that contradiction, I've, I've, been, I've been going back to, you know, complexity and contradiction over and over and over again. And I mean, you know, about the closest one I can find who will go into that into those questions with me is uh, an Old Testament theologian called Walter Brueggemann, who, I've, <laughs> I, you know, I've, I found just extraordinarily useful precisely because he will actually ask those questions. Right. Uh, but, you know, so many theologians just won't. Yeah. And that's that's part of why I really like the Christian Humanist podcast. I think everybody should check it out. They do ask a lot of these bigger questions, you know, maybe not necessarily directly from the Bible every time, whatever. But it, it's something. It's also something I really appreciate. From uh, we've had Father Jonathan of the Greek Orthodox Church on our podcast a few times, and something the Orthodox Church does really well, in my opinion, is sit with the idea of mystery, the mystery of the Eucharist. Right? They don't. They don't have is is Christ really present? Is he not? It's it's a mystery. Um, there's this right. mystery of God's presence, the mystery of the Trinity. And that's something that mystery is something that Western minds have a hard time with. And I think it's something that more Christians should become more comfortable with. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. Really appreciate your show. And one thing I think a lot of people don't think philosophers are very good at, 
a lot of people think philosophers are focusing on, you know, the what if, these all kinds of scenarios, but they don't typically think of them as practical. So now I'm going to ask you to be practical with me. Awesome. Awesome. What is, we, we ask this to every guest, but if you had to give a single tangible action to help maintain unity in the church, the whole church, what is a practical way that you think your everyday churchgoer listening can help maintain unity in the church? Well, first of all, I'm going to go ahead and say that I am totally stealing this from a, a philosopher named uh, <laughs> Frank Beckwith. Uh, he is a Roman Catholic philosopher teaching at the Baptist University, Baylor. And in his book, which uh, I actually got to talk with him about this book on Christian Humanist Profiles uh, yes. called Never Doubt Thomas, one of the things that he recommends is that Protestants and Catholics read Thomas Aquinas together because Thomas Aquinas does his work before there are Protestants and Catholics, uh, when there are simply, you know, European Christians. And so, you know, I mean, in that, first of all, it's, I mean, it's a great book. I recommend it to everyone. But kind of following up on that, you know, one of the things that I'd like to see happen, especially when we Christians educate our young, uh, whether you're talking about K-12 or whether you're talking about college, is I'd like to see more of a focus on those texts that aren't immediately dedicated I mean, like Erasmus on the freedom of the will, I'll go ahead and admit that I wrote my dissertation on one of the books that offends this, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but on those books that, you know, don't have as their immediate aim dividing us. So, I mean, books like Boethius that I talked about before, books like Dante's Commedia, uh, books like Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love, books like, uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica, you know, those books that again, because they are involved in constructive projects, they lead us into conversations that, you know, at minimum, they get us all involved in a common conversation rather than putting us at a stance of opposition. Does that make some sense? Yeah. Little do you know, there's an ongoing joke where TJ hates Thomas Aquinas. Oh, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I just thought see, that was I, funny I, that I, you brought it up. I was like, that's hilarious. Oh, and see, I, I obviously I haven't listened to enough episodes of The Whole Twice? Church because I... <laughs> <laughs> on my show i wasn't aware of that i'm sorry tj <laughs> yeah, i think it's mostly a joke <laughs> it's partially a joke <laughs> uh, but what do you what do you think the ramifications would be if our average churchgoer started reading those more philosophical texts and applying it yeah i mean i think that you know one of the things that could develop from that and of course you know i'm, I'm thinking about you know those those of us who have the gift and the opportunity to undergo a Christian education, right? And so these are the folks, you know, I would hope would be teaching Sunday school and would be leading, you know, house churches and would be, you know, doing these, um, I, I guess, you know, uh, facilitating the conversations, right? And I think if those folks spent more of their time demonizing sort of our immediate partisan or sectarian enemies, my hunch is that some really good questions could emerge and that at least in that facet of our lives, in that educational facet, we could discipline ourselves into a kind of engagement with neighbors and even an engagement with enemies that promises more than those practices that are dedicated to. And, and, and I'm going to use this word and I realize it's a much broader word than the way I'm using it here, but to certain kinds of apologetics. Right. Because certain mm -hmm. kinds of yeah. apologetics are dedicated to I'm going to put bullets in your gun so that the next time you see <laughs> one of the bad guys, you can shoot him with your logic gun. And, you know, yeah. I uh, when I was a, a younger man, 
I used to be really into that. And as I've gotten older, I'm 45 now, as, I, as I've kind of hinted at before, I realize that, I mean, life is just so much more fun if you dedicate yourself to conversation with people who differ from you rather than demolishing those who differ from you. Yeah. yeah. Fun fact, I was homeschooled and uh, a large part of one of my biology classes was uh, basically just how to shoot bullets at evolutionists. Yes. Uh, and then I yes, went yes, to a yes. public college and uh, was not prepared for my first biology class. So oh, that's that interesting because like, I, I went yeah. the other direction. I went <laughs> to public K-12 and then went to a Christian liberal arts college. So, um, <laughs> too. yeah, I, yeah, I, wild. It's wild. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's nothing like showing up to biology 101 and your teacher on week three talks about pterodactyls on train tracks. Uh, I, I, first of all, I didn't take biology as an undergrad. Um, I did chemistry instead, which was, I'll, I'll confess just because both. I found it easier. <laughs> I also did both. I do like chemistry more though. Okay. All right. Fair enough. But I will <laughs> say that, uh, at a Milligan university where I did my undergrad, I mean, at least, uh, in the mid to late nineties, when I was a student there, the, uh, the professors were very conversant with. Uh, you know, biological evolution and with, you know, sort of what I would call university biology. So that that's one of the things that folks from at least that era, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know mm -hmm. who's teaching biology there now, but I can't imagine they've taken too much of a swerve. Uh, oh, they yeah. didn't have to undertake that. <laughs> no. Yeah. One of the uh, funniest things I ever got to witness in college was when I transferred to Charleston Southern University, very conservative mm -hmm. Christian school. Um, they had donations, I guess, from the state or whatever. So it had the little stands from the state. So these different fossils and stuff that had dates on them that were older than what the teachers were telling us the universe's age was. Oh, that's phenomenal. So regardless <laughs> of what you believe, something was wrong. <laughs> it's no. just amusing. Wow. So before we start to wrap up the show, uh, we'd like to do our God Moment segment, which is take a minute to share what all God's been up to with us recently by sharing a blessing challenge, love or worship curse, anything God's been up to. And I always make Josh go first, especially so today because he was late. Mm, yeah. As penance, Joshua, what is your God <laughs> moment this week? <laughs> well, I was uh, I was late because our other podcast, we have six hosts on Systematic Ecology, and we all got together for a meeting to go over how the show's been doing for the year, and it's been doing really well. So that was really encouraging. And we also got to uh, just kind of discuss what our goals are for the coming year. And it was just, it was a blessing to kind of get to relish in what we've accomplished so far and see where god is leading that show so that was that was cool yeah um ditto yep same one no <laughs> i uh i had one and i lost it well cj i can do mine if i'd give you a second to think you know all right it's unorthodox but i'll allow it uh, all right, Nathan all right. Gilmore, what is your god moment and, and this i mean is gonna start at start out sounding like a downer and it is but uh in the second half of the year 2022, um, I've had a former student of mine die from chronic congenital diseases, and two of my former students lose their spouses, and one of them lose his son in car wrecks. And I don't think God did those things. Please don't hear me saying that. But what encourages me is that when I mourn and when I lament and when I listen to them and, and to Audie's mother, you know, because she and I have met for coffee a couple times since he died. I realize at every turn that I'm part of a tradition that takes Job and First Kings and Haggai seriously. So even though I I just absolutely refuse to minimize the injustice and the horror that comes when people younger than me die, I still know that the scriptures that I've inherited 
are going to tell the truth about those things. They're not going to pretend that these things are anything but horrific. We've got the book of Job right in the middle of our Bible. And frankly, when things like this happen, I mean, I, I need I need a book of Job. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, for me, my God moment for this, you know, this past week, uh, Thanksgiving was this past week. It is a, a, a great chance to see all of my family, which is quite vast. Uh, we have to rent out the church to do Thanksgiving. And it's nice. it's just good to see them catch up, you know, with the, the family. I don't see that often. And especially my cousin who now lives in Hawaii wow. did not come. But wow. my friend from high school ended up marrying her. They met somehow. <laughs> they ran off to Hawaii because he's in the army. And they FaceTimed us, which was cool. That is cool. That was great. It's crazy how, how that happens. Small world. Yeah. Even with, you know, a few thousand miles between you. But, yeah. Also, my other God moment is I am blessed that Florida State beat Florida and that Clemson lost. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. The Gamecocks beat Clemson. Finally. Amen. It's our time. Hallelujah. The next 15 years are ours. Uh, if I you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend. Uh, you can share it with an enemy. Share it with a cousin. Uh, Thanksgiving was just around. I know you started talking to your cousins again. Yeah. You got like a solid month of really talking to your cousins in here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, don't be afraid of geeks. Uh, see where we talk about geek and faithum and where they collide at systematicgeekology.org. We have our other podcasts there. You can hit the host tab. My name and TJ's name there and all the episodes we're a part of with that show, you can see on those pages. So check it out. Uh, consider supporting us on Patreon to hear our pet peeves segment, which we do with our guests after the show, which is fun. It's about pets and pet peeves. Uh, go to our store or buy the limited time fundraiser t-shirt to help us with getting a new website and our con next year. Once again, we're not stealing your money. Con just means convention. <laughs> Sorry about the shorthand. Thank you for listening to the whole church podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode coming up. We will interview a uh, Catholic life coach, uh, Michael Joquith, Joquith, Joquith. I'm not sure how to say his name. I'm going to ask him <laughs> when he doesn't have to type it out. Uh, then we have a special Christmas bonus episode with uh, Eugene Stutzman, again, discussing the Watoto mystery, ministry in Uganda, Africa. After that, we will have Eric Nevins, the founder of the Christian Podcasters Association, returning to discuss the status and future of Christian podcasting in the coming year. And finally, at the end of season one, Francis Chan will be joining us. Yeah, he doesn't know that, but that's mm -hmm. not a problem. I'm sure. He'll join us in some capacity. Yeah. So, Once again, thank you for listening and thank you for supporting us and for signing the Francis Chan petition. Thank you for listening to the Whole Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, you can always sponsor our show at patreon.com forward slash the whole church podcast or by donating to the fundraiser by buying a limited time fundraiser t-shirt using the link down below in the notes. Coming up next time, we will be interviewing Michael Jacquith, a Catholic life coach.